Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm reeling, Ed, that we've managed to, I think, break a new personal best for the internet in finding the main character of Twitter. Mm. Uh, I woke up on my side of the pond to find that Bean Dad had become <laughs> the flagpole for just awful parenting like that's pretty much uh, abuse guys and but yeah oh wow well done everyone i guess like <laughs> it's been ratioed quite oh yeah the proportions on that have been interesting but yeah what a way to kick off the first episode of 2021 head. <laughs> I'm still reeling, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and also like just you know for us to get so so early into the year to find so kind of like meaty a main character, the uh, the character question being uh, John Roderick of the band The Long Winters, who I mainly know because they do the theme song to Bim Bam, who uh, posted a long thread on Twitter where he talked about uh, his daughter being hungry and then him refusing to open a can of beans for her until she learned how to do it and it taking six hours. <laughs> and then people being like, that sounds pretty fucked up. <laughs> that seems like a, a really awful way to raise a child. <laughs> and yeah, and things kind of spiraling on from there. And I'm sure there's probably a backlash of people like saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't judge. You shouldn't tell people how to raise their kids. It's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> it yeah. seems like, seems a bad bad way to, to raise a child. Someone made the, the great uh, comparison tweet or someone joking, saying, like, I've, I'm not going to give my child insulin until he can explain how, how it works. It's been four hours. He's fading fast. <laughs> and, like, you know, it, it does illustrate how if it wasn't something as innocuous as beans, which are inherently just a funny thing to discuss in any kind of seriousness, I think people would be a lot less kind of, like, sanguine about it. Or there'd be less of a kind of, like, a division about it. There would definitely mm. be fewer people rushing to be, like... Oh no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't judge. You know, you you can't tell people how to raise their kids. Yeah. Also, I I did sort of. Oh God, I I hadn't had my coffee yet, and I just spent like <laughs> far too long, kind of scrolling through. And it was a real kind of rubberneck, or maybe I'll now just call it a kind of a, a bean tail, of just <laughs> scrolling through his entire thread because it was properly mm. rubbernecking, and people's replies and trying to get some grasp of what was going on and he said at one point that it had been like six hours and that's how long you wait to eat between meals she was fine and I'm like no but even by that logic sir she then hadn't eaten for 12 hours <laughs> like mm. you're not you're assuming that she had mm, yeah mm, no nah, I'm gonna no nah. it's just amazing the number of people and what twitter does to us because i'm not saying that he decided to parent like this in order to create a twitter thread but the things mm. that people believe they should share right yeah. and and like i'm really not into this withholding and food insecurity and misunderstanding almost willfully to try and make a point of how capable a nine-year-old is of doing mm. stuff if she's never seen and just leaving someone to figure it out for themselves like that's what you do with a child with some 
colourful blocks and play, right? To encourage mm-hmm. lateral thinking, not running their blood sugar levels down to the point where I think he also mentioned, she said, my brain is fuzzy. And I'm like, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't at least throw your child a bone, even a bone, a biscuit <laughs> in that instance, I'm going to give you a massive side eye, not only in how you choose to parent your child, but how you treat people in general. Um, and I think like particularly last year, there was all this kind of very internal talk about cancel culture and particularly in terms of comedians and a lot of people who were understandably frustrated because they can't work. But then some people who are in the most charitable sense, whack a doodle because they (laughs) feel that some great right is being taken away from them because they're not able to, you know, (laughs) quite literally spit jokes. And I think there are still times that are very valuable for a lot of people that aren't a mob to take someone who is in a position of privilege and say, this is not good in any way and we are allowed to be concerned for your child. <laughs> it's not between like public figures having a spat, you know. In, a, in And, you know, on a complete tangent, happy birthday to Greta Thunberg, who is mm. going to save the world, <laughs> whether we're going to help her or not. Yeah, fellow fellow Capricorn, I'm taking that one for the astrological team, Ed. And also just uh, fantastic at Twitter, Greta oh. Thunberg, as, as, as evidenced by her posting a birthday tweet uh, where she was uh, wearing a T-shirt saying Flat Mars Society or, or something similar and then talking about how she's been awakened and she's going to go down the pub and tell people about like all of the, the, the conspiracies, which is an, an excellent way of trolling all of your weirdo haters who are all out there and just seem really determined to scream at a young woman who wants to live on a livable planet for as long as possible. For the benefit of the tape, I am doing a chef kiss gesture. (laughs) Before we get into the main stuff for this episode, how was your uh, new year? Did you manage, do you have any uh, resolutions for going forward for this brand new, hopefully improved year? Yeah. Uh, resolutions. That's a great question. Um, I think it's the classic drink less, move more, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've had the past five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And I think this <laughs> might be the year that I actually do it considering pubs are closed and I can only go outside to exercise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, about- the whole world has, has kind of moved in your direction to kind of like help you out thanks world for stopping (laughs) so that i could maybe do a health for myself weirdly um how about you ed yeah mine are mainly health related as well like i've been doing really well losing weight over the last sort of three months or so after having a, a rough summer where i was uh doing a lot of late nights and eating very poorly as a result so like since september i've managed to lose about 25 pounds and so it's kind of continuing in that vein just to like you know maintain that uh keep trying to exercise as much as possible much like you just like going out for nice little exercise walks during the course of the day and then hopefully you know when there is a vaccine and it's safe to kind of go into gyms again like maybe kind of like do that in earnest as well so i think that'd be kind of like my main ones and then uh, other than that i think the only other one is like just try and watch more of the blu-rays i own (laughs) because um 
I, a part of like, this is also kind of like tied to the weight loss thing is like, usually my method of dealing with stress is to, you know, eat snacks and I haven't been doing that. And I've realized that the way I supplement that is I just like do retail therapy and that tends to be like going online and ordering Blu-rays cheap. So I've just got a lot of like Blu-rays that I have sitting on the shelf that I feel like I should probably watch that at some point. And now that, you know, I actually have time to sit down and watch like all of Children of Paradise or whatever, like kind of feels like now would be the best sort of time to actually you know dust those off and give them a watch because i hear those films are good yeah <laughs> well i'm glad you're feeling good in yourself pal that's excellent news thank you and i know what you mean i feel like you know when you and i first started talking at the beginning of the pandemic it was like oh maybe it's a chance to sort of catch up on things and it turns out it's not a holiday pandemic mm. it's um a constant cognitive assault um mm. and i don't want to say that i've adapted and i'm now like you know rising up like sarah connor or anything because that's very much not uh, what's happened but i do feel a sense of resolve that i did not have towards the end of this year and i think it's because i am someone who really likes new year um not mm. not in a kind of uh well you know it's a revelry but not in the kind of like you have to go out and be in a bar and um pay an overpriced fee on the door or anything like that but i think yeah. being around with people and being like okay everyone is starting on day one now i like and i think that was the sort of positive energy of a scale that i couldn't quite comprehend and then the pandemic has come along and being like hey here's <laughs> um, uh the flip side of that and i think just saying okay in the words of orange juice rip it up and start again um, mm. is often very positive for everyone. So here we are. Look at this. Look at this whole year stretching ahead of ourselves. Let's um, let's yeah. try and do and be better. And maybe, well, I've been reading it. I haven't read for a while. <laughs> so Good, that's yeah. nice. Um, although my watch later on YouTube still has about 70 videos on there. So, mm. But it looks like I'm not going out again for at least three months. So I might be mm. able to, you know. Take, yeah. take the top off of that. Yeah, you're doing the full Lee Mac. Um, <laughs> so we'll go on to the. We'll that's, such to a the... Great, sorry, that's such a great specific joke for the UK. <laughs> <laughs> that's a treat for anyone who doesn't live in the UK. That's a little. You can, you can find that out for yourselves. It's a little scavenger hunt to start. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got the time. Yeah, go on you. <laughs> go, go on your Google searches. Um, <laughs> Try and, you know, like, to be nostalgic, try and come up with a Google whack. I imagine that's a lot harder these days. Oh. Because there's just, there's just so much more, so much more words out on the internet. Right, Dave Gorman, if, you, if you've tried to do a sequel, let us know. Yeah, see how just, right, I mean, there'd be less travel this time, I guess. It'd just be him <laughs> zooming in to conversate with various people around the world. <laughs> I'd watch it. I'd pay for it. There you go, Dave. That's that's me signing on the dotted line. So we'll go on to the news for this week. Obviously, it's early in the year, so there hasn't been a huge amount, but there have been a couple of notable stories from the last week or so. I think the biggest from a pure, you know, industry perspective was the debut of Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max to, let's say, a mixed response. Uh, I think it's fair to say the film started out with around 80% on Rotten Tomatoes for what's that that's worth, you know, in terms of a critical consensus, there was a general sense of like, ah, oh, you know, it's not as good as the first one, but you know, it's fine. And then literally like the next day when more reviews 
market were published. Uh, it fell down to like the 60s and now it's just barely above rotten. Uh, for, but yeah, personally, I, I watched it yesterday and I thought it was like a perfectly fine, goofy way to spend like an hour or so. It's very much indebted to the old Wonder Woman TV series and more tonally similar to like the Richard Donner Superman movies and recent superhero films. So it's got, I, I, I like that element of it, but it also is like way too long. And there's a bit where they go to Egypt, which is deeply regressible in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was, yeah, I haven't seen it myself yet, Ed. I was not mm-hmm. a fan of the first one, um, yeah. but uh, for reasons that I won't go into too much detail now, yeah i wonder how much of it is that now because of the huge shift to streaming that we've all had to do whether there's a behavioral difference and a lot of people Mm. are reviewing because they still have opinions about things but the only place that we can converse now really is the internet en masse Mm. it's it can't just be a kind of you know you get the satisfaction of turning to the person that you went to the cinema with and going, well, that was rubbish, and then leave it Mm. be. Whether people feel compelled to put their thoughts down in the general forum. But I also think it's because a lot of people who would make the effort to go and see Wonder Woman are at least interested or really want to see it. Whereas now, because it's just kind of there, if you're already subscribed to a service, I think the expectations have really shifted. Like some people are like, mm. oh, it's sort of there, but I think they're not, it's a bit more come on and impress me then because I have so many other options available to me. And I think, yeah, yeah, that kind of behavioral, I mean, some people can still love it. I'm not saying that that's then like a bias that people can't get over at all. Um, but I mm. do, I do wonder. And I mean, sort of this kind of, let's be honest, a big chunk of racism in this day and age is this what gal gadot was singing about last year mm. not sure i'm into that yeah i i do feel like the change in change in venue of <laughs> the the movie going from you know a planned theatrical release to it being shown at home i think has has had a huge impact in how people consider it because like you say there are so much more options and it's not like, you know, you go to a cinema, you sit down, you get to be overwhelmed by the cinematic experience, but also, you know, there is a higher risk on you turning it off, like like leaving because you've, you've spent your money, you're out, you know, for a night out or wherever you want to see it. So you might as well, you know, sit the whole thing through. And I think you're more in that situation, unless what you're watching is like absolutely rancid, you're more conducive, I think, to like, like something because you know, there is a certain amount of investment on your part into actually sitting through the whole thing and coming away thinking, oh, yeah, that was a good use of my time. Whereas if you're watching Wonder Woman 1984 on a streaming service, like there's nothing to stop you from just being like, I'm not really feeling this. And then just like not even leaving the same streaming service. Like you could just you could just go and watch something else on HBO Max. <laughs> like that's all you would need to do. And I do think that, drastically alters people's approach to art i think that it it lends it a certain impermanence that you know i think is not quite there when you go see something in a in a movie theater where it just feels more solid which i think is a problem that a lot of the movies that have debuted on streaming services this year have felt where even like the big hitters like david finch's mank 
feels like something that came out is a new movie by a major filmmaker and then hardly anyone's talking about it like three weeks after it came out except to make fun of the fact that it's very funny that there is a movie called Mank out there. <laughs> Our next story this week and the uh, the next two stories are, are quite sad. There were a couple of very, very notable deaths, uh, one of which very, very shocking, the death of MF Doom, uh, also known as Daniel Dumile, who was a rapper, American rapper who lived in England due to uh, terrible things with the US immigration system, which basically meant that he couldn't go home for, you know, the last 11 years, which is awful. Um, but who was a hugely uh, influential rapper, hugely beloved within the hip hop community and among fans of hip hop for his work with uh, Mad Lib on the Mad Villainy album or for his own solo stuff like mm Food or for me personally, the album of his that I really connected to was The Mouse and the Mask, the album he did with Danger, Do- uh, with, uh, Danger Mouse back in the mid 2000s, which uh, I played the hell out of on my student radio show at the time. Mm. Just a wonderfully kind of like vibrant, creative rapper, like a, a great lyricist, someone who really enjoys playing with sounds and samples in a way that was like really forward thinking particularly in like the late 90s when he was doing some of the stuff that like Kanye would really blow up doing a few years later and it was just a very shocking death because he's only 49 but also the announcement of his death you know kind of came through as a Instagram message from his family but it was a little obtusely worded so people initially weren't entirely sure what they were saying had happened Mm. um particularly because they revealed him that he had actually died in October. He had died on Halloween and they had, you know, not announced it, which is obviously entirely their right to grieve in private. But there was just something very dislocating about it. Like, not, is this, not only has this guy who has always been such a force and such a presence and he's just such a, a wonderful creative figure has passed away but then suddenly like this thinking of like wait did he actually die oh my god he's been dead for two months what's going on it was very very dislocating experience i love mad villainy that's the Mm -hmm. sort of one mf doom sort of work that i feel really familiar with and that definitely is part of my kind of like student experience as well it's towards my sort of last year of uni that i just like couldn't stop listening to it and it's a real shame and i feel for his family because i guess it was kind of a it's an interesting decision to make and I think one that they made for themselves as they absolutely should mm-hmm. because I yeah. think there's so much kind of immediacy in the kind of again the news cycle and the grind and I think you know I understand their decision because it really just affected them the most and maybe mm. they just needed that time and I guess at a time when there's so much grief and so much loss that there's something really considerate perhaps about, I don't know, I guess I'm struggling to articulate it, but I think it's a really interesting model and something quite compassionate and not wanting to dominate a news cycle and to protect themselves and those closest to him. Mm. Um, and uh, Glasgow absolutely loves MF Doom there was some really beautiful um, street art that came up very quickly after the news came out and his work is incredible and I think Mm. people are devastated he definitely you know he, he seemed his work as an artist was uncompromising and distinctive um yeah and yeah 
yeah, that that I think has been as, as ever when like someone who's like a huge notable figure dies, and particularly someone who was around for so long and did so much. There is something quite nice about everyone sharing their memories of it, and what I think has been particularly nice with MF Doom's passing was just how many people's story of discovering him was pretty much exactly the same, <laughs> yeah. which is like, I was at college, someone played it for me, or like, you know, like I, I discovered him through one of his other collaborations and pretty much everyone who discovered him seemed to discover him when they were like, you know, at university or whatever. And yeah, that clearly imprinted on them in a, like a real way. And it's, it's really nice just having that sense of uh, community it kind of coming up bubbling up in this this deeply sad moment where everyone's like yeah he was fucking great and even if they hadn't listened to his work for a, a while like remembering what an impact it had on them so yeah that that's always kind of like a nice thing about him particularly for someone like him who was you know beloved during his lifetime but also you know has was it was never necessarily that central a figure to the story of pop culture like he was always off doing his own thing and doing whatever he wanted regardless of whether or not it was going to it, whether it was going to you know, have some sort of like commercial value he, he definitely like you said he was very uncompromising and i think that was a big part of what people liked about him because he was like really uncompromising uncompr- about doing something really fun and it's clear that he wanted the work to come forward rather than himself. I mean, he's MF mm. Doom and the thing that's most distinctive about him is his mask, kind of like yeah. a superhero. And he wanted to push that whole idea of an artist forward and as far as I'm aware, remained incredibly private and was really quite all right with not being in the spotlight. So mm. that's exactly how we'd find out now looking back, even if it's a shock and we're grieving how could it be announced in any other way? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So recipes, MF Doom, everyone, you know, fire up your Spotify or Apple Music and play Mad Villainy or the Mouse and the Mask or Autumn Food or any of that stuff. Like it's a there's a an absolute bounty of riches out there for people to to discover. And the other sad death that uh, was announced the other day was the passing of Joan McLean Silver, who passed away at the age of eighty five. Uh, she was a Film director who is probably most famous for the movie Crossing Delancey, which is a romantic comedy from the late 80s. But she was a really great filmmaker, particularly her work in the 70s movies like um, Hester Street or Chilly Scenes of Winter, uh, and who was, I would say, fairly undervalued during her lifetime until your very recent years where Crossing Delancey really kind of started to emerge. So, I mean, I can only speak to, you know, my Twitter feed and then people kind of like talking about her work, but I really feel like the last couple of years people talked about Crossing Delancey a lot and started talking about her as a filmmaker a lot more in the last couple of years. And I know that there's videos of her going out and doing like talks and things to, to talk about her work in recent years. So clearly, you know, there's a generation of people who grew up on her films who started to really kind of advocate for her as a great, American artist who was generally not was generally not kind of like valued as much as as she should have been and who kind of made films that were you know beloved by the people who saw them but not that many people ended up seeing them which is uh, a terrible shame she absolutely was because my to my shame Ed I hadn't heard about her until she passed away yeah same here like I'd heard like I said I'd heard of Crossing Delancey but 
until she passed away like i hadn't hadn't really heard about her as a filmmaker but in the days since you know i've watched a bunch of her movies because uh people have very he- uh, helpfully uploaded them on onto youtube and vimeo and things like that and just been blown away that there was this kind of like great great director out there that uh no one really seemed to talk about even though i would say something like chilly scenes of winter really ranks up there with like any work from the 70s at dealing with like disaffected kind of like downhearted boomers but also being like a super funny examination of frustrated romance Mm. well all the more to discover now and just a shame that maybe she wasn't appreciated to how uh, how she really deserved during her lifetime Mm. yeah absolutely So we'll go on to the main topic for this week, and it's the first episode of A New Year. Usually we would do a preview, but uh, things are still very up in the air about when exactly things are coming out. (laughs) And considering in the past we have had problems with like movies just getting delayed, like there was like a three-year period where Matt and I just constantly were talking about how The Great Gatsby was coming out because it kept getting pushed back. So this year especially that seems like a fool's errand so we won't do a preview instead we're doing our kind of countdown of our top 10 things of the year like mostly films in in my case but you know we've kind of mixed in some tv and podcasts and things as well because again whilst there were a lot of films released that year it kind of felt like it was a year where uh all sorts of media were kind of like coming out and kind of like cross-pollinating in interesting ways just because of the fact that you know a lot of this stuff instead of being consumed in the usual place of a movie theater we were kind of like consuming at home so yeah so like it's not just top 10 movies of the year you know like there's some other stuff uh, sprinkled in there as well before we get to our top 10 we will our top 10s we will uh, just do some honorable mentions uh, emily what are your honorable mentions for the year my honourable mentions may be a bit more tongue-in-cheek, but I wouldn't say dishonourable because <laughs> I'm not, that's not my style. But just because I can't really get them out of my head and I'm still confounded by them. And is that not mm-hmm. the true purpose of art, Ed? Mm-hmm. Um, my first honourable mention has to be Emily in Paris mm. because she's so in Paris, Ed. it's just i i'm still not entirely unconvinced that it wasn't actually written by an algorithm instead Mm -hmm. of who's which has probably been patented by darren star um and just you know deleted um well did a find all and replace of uh, carrie with emily new york (laughs) with paris and cigarettes with pastry (laughs) um and I cannot wait for series two. <laughs> what the hell? Um, I think because it's, it. I feel like, is it in code? Are we trying to crack this? Yeah, truly, truly bizarre. And I think now it's like, oh, is this the kind of way that the kind of the YouTube algorithm went? You know, with all those like kids videos that ended mm-hmm. up kind of being like, getting like sadder and stranger and more sinister because yeah. that was kind of how I wonder if something's happening like that here to us on on Netflix. Spider-Man's going to kidnap Emily next time. Yeah, which, you know, and Spider-Man will be an amalgamation of Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire just to try and keep everyone <laughs> happy-ish, I guess. Yeah, I break down every time I start talking about Emily in Paris because <laughs> but then, you know, sometimes you need things to 
bring you fully into the wonder of the world. It's awe and majesty and uh, sheer terror. I mean, I really hope that there's like a commentary toggle track option, like Werner Herzog, other people. <laughs> I would be well into that. So that is my first mention. How about you, Ed? My first one is the movie The Way Back, which uh, is the Ben Affleck is a sad baseball co- uh, basketball coach movie that came out earlier. I think it was like one of the last like movies to open theatrically before the pandemic, although I only just watched it this week as part of my 2020 catch up. And I, I want to mention it because I think it's a it's a very good, solid sports movie. It's a very good, solid movie about uh, addiction you know his character is an alcoholic and you know he's, he's kind of struggling that whilst also coaching this basketball team and it's just a very non-corny non-sensationalized take on the material in a way that i really appreciated it it reminded me of friday night lights in the best possible mm. way and but the thing about it that i think really sets it apart is that there is this kind of intertextual quality to it where ben affleck has so become like a living meme for desperation and sadness in the last couple of years that there is just like this authenticity to it that i'm not sure would necessarily be there otherwise like it's a real masterstroke of casting him in that particular role at this particular point in his career where he's had these like very clear ups and downs um over the the course of his career that it kind of feels earned in a way that you know might not necessarily have been the case with another actor you know, we, we're so used to seeing him like sad on a beach wearing a towel <laughs> and you know that bone deep sadness of his like really lends a lot to to the movie so uh that's my my honorable mention doesn't quite crack my top 10 but i do think it's a really solid piece of work and really interesting wow. uh, what's your what's your other honorable mention well i mean <laughs> <laughs> My year's cinematic equivalent of Ron Seal Award mm-hmm. um, is Money Plane, <laughs> which I still don't understand, Ed. I think my, <laughs> I wonder if I shouldn't really call these honourable mentions rather than just like question mark, question mark, question mark, because mm-hmm. I still don't understand that film either. And I feel like it should have a really simple premise, but I think it sort of gets into like the intricacies of gambling quite a bit Mm -hmm. and there's all i know is that there's three brothers in it not playing brothers um yeah (laughs) like the thing is is that i'm also doing a rewatch of 30 rock uh liz lemon's Mm -hmm. still a great character there's a lot of good jokes it's a lot more racist towards asian people than i remember um but i had just managed to sort of without really intending to dovetail the episode where Kelsey Grammer goes in on um, <laughs> Jenna and Kenneth's graft of the ice cream cake shop. Um, yeah. And like the entirety of Money Plane had me screaming, <laughs> Frasier. <laughs> like, yeah. Frasier, I think the other, the line from that episode, that's probably my favorite episode of 30 Rock. I just love it so much. But my, my favorite line from that is him, them like having explained the con to him and then him being like, okay, who are you and what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) That's really lovely. And then (laughs) I also really enjoy, we'll have to beat you out of the best 
Ben's gang. <laughs> like, not only is there an initiation, there's like a there's like a letting an official letting go. <laughs> We're just mm-hmm. getting oh, getting beaten up. Why why is that funny? Um, yeah, money plane. I still don't. There's a lot of what is it? Ah, I think it's because they like Emily and Paris and money plane have the same thing where I can't quite find the words for them because they genuinely mm. override my attention centers with just some kind of sleight of hand and i'm not sure what i've just seen but i have watched all of it and i kind of want more um mm. and it's shot so horribly and <laughs> like the same thing kind of happens again and again with the sort of strong female character i just want to know what Kelsey Grammer was on when he signed mm-hmm. up to it, because I feel like Darren Star might have the same dealer. Um, <laughs> money, money plane, money plane. It's the money plane. They keep, they keep saying. They say, right. Here's another thing that I've just realised. <laughs> sorry, a commonality between my honourable mentions. Everyone says the the title or like alludes to the title a lot. Like Emily mm-hmm. keeps saying how she's Emily and that she's in Paris, and they keep saying money plane. <laughs> What's your other honourable mention? <laughs> My other honourable mention is the uh, podcast QAnon Anonymous, Ooh. which is a show that I've been really enjoying this year. It's three kind of like journalists who are tracking the ongoing saga of QAnon, what the various new beliefs are, how it connects to other conspiracies around the world. It's a really fun, entertaining, but also vital insight into how this particular online movement has kind of like grown and festered and become this like weirdly uh, upsetting and dangerous part of American political life over the last couple of years. And I think this year in particular, because of the quarantine really start stoking a lot of like anti-government conspiracy theories and also giving people a lot of time to you know stay at home and get radicalized on youtube this kind of felt like the year where QAnon kind of went from being this weird thing that no one really knew about unless they were like really interested in the far reaches of online to seeing it like crop up everywhere and be a thing that you know you kind of need to know at least a little bit of to understand some of the things that are happening on the right in America. And this show, I think, does a really great job of kind of like tracking that and giving you information and insight into that and and being very funny about it, but also very clear-eyed about the potential danger of it all. So I have really enjoyed hearing that show, hearing its evolution over the last year, and it's become very much appointment listening. Every time there's a new episode in my feed, it's the first thing I listen to because uh, sometimes, sometimes there's just a lot of really... St- strange stuff happening and you need someone to try and put it into context and those guys have just been really great at it yep so we'll now uh, crack into our top tens uh emily what is your number 10 of the year well i'm gonna sort of kick off by making sort of two quick points um mm-hmm. number one is that kind of the there are some pieces that i've chosen uh, pieces, texts, however academic or kind of generic <laughs> you want to be, how you want to describe the things, what I liked from the year. Units of content. Units, thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, in terms of my top units, the ones that I feel that have been discussed a lot and um, have warranted a lot of attention and rightly so, but have kind of been sort of earlier 
um, in the year, so we have had more time to kind of um, process them or that got a lot of coverage. I'm not going to say much about um, mm -hmm. because I overall generally agree <laughs> with everything else that's been said um but i still really like them but i won't go into as much detail as other stuff that i feel came out sort of towards the end of the year or hasn't had as much of a look in basically so my kind of reasoning behind my uh 10 to 1 rundown isn't out of like quality it's more out of because i think everything is that obviously I'm listing is great. <laughs> it's more to do with what I think will benefit most from discussion or I feel deserves more discussion than it's got. Um, and hopefully that can um, kind of recommend things to people. And the other point is that, Ed, I think without even really consciously making an effort, all, all of my stuff is is made by women, which, uh, or is kind of, mm. um, you know, written, directed, major roles, uh, both in terms of behind the scenes and in front of camera, public view, again, terms, blah, um, which is kind of amazing. And you and I sort of briefly had a chat as to why that may be off mic. And I think you had the really interesting point, which is kind of what we're talking about a little bit with Wonder Woman, is has this kind of shift to streaming actually given more prevalence or like access to a lot of work that would kind of be seen as a second option otherwise. And again, like, is that kind of to do with theatrical models being quite broken? Because mm. if there is all this amazing work being made by women, people of colour, you know, world cinema, which is still often, <laughs> you know, so often, uh, and, and still in awards and things, uh, termed foreign cinema, which I think is purposefully alienating. And remember, Bong Joon-ho at the Oscars talking about, you know, there's a whole world if you can just get over this little sort of like inch of, of text um, in terms of subtitling and things. I wonder if, you know, because surprise, surprise, she's a, she's a socialist and angry at the system, whether, you know, this kind of pressure that we have on nurturing individual artists is futile because the actual model of um, theatres is kind of setting a lot of people up to if not fail then have a much trickier sustained career um mm. and accurate showing of their work anyway this is still a mix of film and tv and i think because the pandemic has just fused ever more uh all of our units uh into one into one screen <laughs> the bad screen the good screen that uh you know that's just one sort of overarching theory that I may be in some way slightly biased towards. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm interested to ideas to the contrary, but it does seem to be sort of going that way. Anyway, after that spiel, I'm going to kick off with number 10, uh, which is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, mm. she was so on fire in the portrait. I loved it. It's a beautiful, lush, queer, romantic period um, drama. It's... I, I mean, I enjoy how incredibly memeable it is. And I think like mm. there's a huge wing of queer Twitter um, that in the way that sort of any generally sort of like smaller audience, and again, I'm sort of using like generalised terms, but, you know, you make a film that resonates with people and they will absolutely take it into their heart. And um, it reminded me a bit of when I saw um, God's Own Country for the first time and this idea mm. of like, Oh my god, and I hope no one's sort of too spoilery. There is something sort of beautiful and quite positive about this. Um, the tragedy is kind of cut through in terms of 
it feels more like an epic romance than anything in terms of, you know, the queers must die. Um, mm. And it just looks beautiful. And it's also quite funny. And in terms of how it um, encapsulates so much of the experience of being a woman, particularly at that time. Yeah, I just... Oh, I love it, and she's so on fire. She's so on fire. The, the you know, the, the, again, maybe I just like really literal titles, and they just stick with me. But that did not disappoint. Yeah, you like to be Leonardo DiCaprio pointing. <laughs> it's the movie title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great. That's a great choice. I was really happy as someone who, over the last couple of years, have kind of been catching up with Celine Siamas work her other movies like girlhood and tomboy and her her screenwriting work on my life as a zucchini uh or my life as a courgette depending on uh mm. where 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 you watch it because uh, americans don't know what courgette is <laughs> it has to be zucchini over here uh it, it, it was like so so great seeing her at the start of the year or the end of last year like being recognized as this kind of like real huge international talent which i think she has been for a while like her movies have been really fantastic but it was really great seeing that being recognized and i'm super excited to see what she does going forward like now with this increased profile and Mm. just because she's amazing she's amazing at what she does totally my number 10 is let them all talk uh steven soderbergh's movie where he just lets them all talk (laughs) good the movie title (laughs) <laughs> yeah straight away it's like oh my god they're all talking no one's <laughs> and i'm allowing no one's muzzling it. them <laughs> yeah i mean it's not really that innovative if you watch oceans 11 all of those cast members do get at least one line so you know i think people are over overstating what an innovation is they lets them all talk um but that was a movie that i didn't have like i was looking forward to because i look forward to anything Soderbergh does even the movies of his i don't like i still look forward to because he's such an interesting filmmaker but uh, I was just really taken with this. I think the the central cast, the the central five actors of Meryl Streep, Candice Bergen, Diane Weist, Lucas Hedges, and Gemma Chan are all very good together. Um, they've all got such great dynamics. The kind of side story of Gemma Chan and Lucas Hedges kind of having this romance is really sweetly done, and you know is really funny. And there's this kind of like great great bit of comedic editing during a scene where they're talking and she is laying out you know how her previous relationship had fallen apart and she's kind of getting more emotional and she ends saying something like something like so i'm dealing with that and then like it cuts immediately to like the next screen and it's next scene and it's just it's just a really funny funnily edited movie like you get a real sense for what a great editor soderbergh is in terms of comedic timing and things like that uh, it looks beautiful. It's a really great use of digital photography where everything doesn't look kind of like murky and awful. He he should really have been brought on to shoot Mank. I think he would have done a really good job with Mank because <laughs> uh, he's one of the only people who seems like to really get how to do digital photography and have it not look just completely terrible. And it's just it's just a really great movie about characters kind of talking through their shared story together like where through the conversations they reveal things about their past you learn something about their tensions and there's a looseness to it that i really liked it's just you know a really good hangout movie even though it deals with some like fairly heavy themes over the the course of the story so yeah i just it's just really great i think it's it's one of my favorite soderbergh certainly of recent years and maybe of his entire uh filmography i I just really really liked it amazing i'm a big fan of uh 
Steve. So also a Capricorn. Yeah, I am banging mm. that drum. It's uh, it's not just a trend to some people. <laughs> My number nine, Ed, is I May Destroy You. And mm-hmm. this is kind of the key one where I don't feel like I can add much more to the conversation because I'm also not exactly who it's for. I think because, mm-hmm. and yet I also am. And it's all the nuance and the beauty. And I think uh, Michaela Cole is a is a genius and I don't think that is uh, an exaggeration at all I can't wait to see what she does next and what Mm. she chooses to do Um, she's utterly remarkable if you haven't seen her Edinburgh TV festival keynote speech I thoroughly recommend that you do it's on YouTube still as far as I'm aware and it's again an incredibly gripping vulnerable um, hour uh, where she I think she she takes on an awful lot, but still manages to keep herself together. The twists and turns of I May Destroy You manage to feel engaging without being exploitative. Um, I think she brings um, a sensitivity, not only from personal experience, but also just a kind of, from her perspective of someone who seems to be in a sense of, sort of in a place of healing and recovery, but also being able to get across that there's no such thing as this kind of perfect, neat arc and yet it is incredibly satisfying from like I mean I had to intellectualize a lot of it in order to watch it (laughs) Mm -hmm. um which is testament to its power I promised I wouldn't go on there didn't I and now here I am um (laughs) but I just think it's a um a totally you know groundbreaking gets thrown a lot in the age of prestige tv but I think she has been able to do that thing that we were talking about in terms of mf doom where it's something that is completely without ego yet very authored and mm. wanting to be part of a wider conversation. And I can't wait to see what she does next. So yeah, I may destroy you. Yeah, again, like Celine Siama, as someone who had really loved chewing gum and thought that that was like such a great comedic work, it was so nice this year seeing her really break through in a major way. Because obviously like chewing gum was like recently popular, but it, it never felt like it was like the thing that everyone was talking about. Whereas every time a new episode of I may destroy you broke, uh, dropped like it, that felt like it was all anyone could discuss. And that was so, so exhilarating. Mm. Uh, and like you said, like the other week, yeah, it was really nice to be like, okay, it's a new week. <laughs> <laughs> it really, really helps uh, separate out the unbroken stream of the pandemic. I'll just re-traumatize myself, break from this big trauma to this one. <laughs> My number nine is American Utopia, the David Byrne constant movie or you know, filmed version of his stage play uh, shot by Spike Lee, which I had incredibly high expectations for. You know, uh, I, I've mentioned them on this show before that Stop Making Sense is like literally one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. And I spent a lot of this year listening to Talking Heads in general because they're very much a, a comfort music for me which is funny when you consider how paranoid and edgy a lot of music is but um i i was really excited to see it i thought that it was such a wonderful show i love the arrangements of the songs they used in it and the way in which he utilizes his live band of dancers slash percussionists who are all kind of like doing these amazing performances around him while also you know doing the songs justice 
uh, his the story that he kind of weaves through his monologues when he's talking to the audience between songs is really ca- captivating and it's it does this really good and really interesting thing of being a look back on pretty much all of his career you know there's songs from pretty much every era of of his long and varied career but recontextualizing it and kind of providing you with a framework for which to understand his work because he there's so much of it kind of boils down to him having this sort of naive but also piercing view of the world like his songs have very simple lyrics about trying to understand just how humans work and so much of that comes through in the way the 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 show is structured and i was just really really blown away with how good it was and I, i i went in with very high expectations so that was just such such a joy to me you know that coming out towards the end of the year and getting to see that and you know kind of having something that offers you this like really beautiful hopeful encompassing vision of humanity which is the sort of thing that you can really use in a year that's been like riven by a lot of incredibly bleak dark things about how awful humans are and how much they hurt each other yeah yeah one one for the can and should and will try to do better team Mm. yeah (laughs) My uh, number eight, that's where we are, is Sex Education Series 2. Now, I was one of those people who I'm very much that little meme of Pingu. um, If hype (laughs) and marketing get to a certain level, I'm like, okay, well, now I'm not going to watch it. Um, And Mm -hmm. I found uh, the marketing for Sex Education. um, I remember being on the tube, Ed, in a city where I don't live. (laughs) Um, The biggest one in the UK, in fact. Um, Wow. Oh, I mean, I mean, and it was just all over the tube, and it and it just felt like skins, and then some, like it had taken mm. this new street drug that I'm too old to understand <laughs> what the kind of latest thing is, and I just thought, okay, that's just definitely not for me because it was this weird Anglo-American mix of sort of forcibly quirky, and I was like, please stop going on about how quirky you are because that's going to make me think you're not anything particularly well written or special or radical which is a real shame because sex education is all of those things um (laughs) and i think really comes into its own in the second season where a little bit of the kind of sort of i wouldn't say gloss but maybe like it gets incredibly real in the first series but i think in the second they're like oh you're cool with us getting to the nitty-gritty and that all characters are people whether they're younger or older and we're all trying to figure it out. Um, but the key thing is to sort of communicate and be kind. And yet there's still a lot of really satisfying and understandable conflict and kind of clashing in various autonomies. And I think it's just a really plausible, warm, funny show. And I can't wait for series three. And I'm sort of coming round to being okay with all the quirkiness it's actually quite charming cool i keep i really need to catch up with that show everyone says it's really good but like you i, I just something about the way it was sold i found like really really off-putting and so you saying that actually it's it kind of lives up to the hype and is not quite the thing it's advertised as makes me feel like i should really check it out uh my number eight is on the rocks the new Sofia Coppola movie which uh, debuted on Apple Plus over here in the US and I think it's a real as, as an aside I think it's a real kind of cruel irony that 
Apple Plus had an actually really stellar slate of movies this year, but because they're on a service that almost no one uses, um, it's like just a real shame that, you know, I think a lot of people will probably miss out on things like Wolf Walkers and On the Rocks and Boys State, um, because those are the sort of things that probably would have done fairly well in cinemas if they follow like the Amazon model of it goes into cinemas and then you can watch it fairly soon after on on the streaming service because uh, they had a really good slate and it kind of feels like a lot of those are going to be ignored, which is a terrible shame. But um, On the Rocks is a kind of like light comedy drama about a writer played by Rashida Jones who suspects that her husband, played by Marlon Wayans, might be cheating on her. She voices this concern to her father, played by Bill Murray, who's kind of a, you know, an incorrigible... Uh, kind of like old guy who just like loves to kind of get into a bit of trouble and he's like well you know like why don't we investigate this and she's like on the one hand she's like "Mm, I'm not sure if I want to know if he's cheating on me but on the other hand you know she's kind of like really drawn in by her dad who has this kind of like undeniable kind of like charm to him even though there's a real sense that maybe there's some disappointment in their relationship and like a lot of the best of Sophia Coppola's work, I think it's the, the characters are incredibly well drawn. You know, they are, they feel like real complicated people. And, you know, people can fault her works for tending to uh, focus on a social, uh, a certain uh, social economic milieu. But I think she does a really good job of dissecting those people. So I think like there's, it's not just that I'm like, oh, she only makes stuff about rich people. It's like she makes stuff about compelling rich people who are like interesting and are going through struggles that feel authentic and are also like really funny people there's some really really good jokes in it it's beautifully shot as well there's one particular shot that i think about a lot where uh a a tear from Rashida jones face falls into a martini and the martini just kind of like ripples out and it's just one of the most kind of like beautifully composed expressionistic shots that i saw in a movie all year and the whole film has like these wonderful little moments dotted throughout and i i went in with you know like hoping to like it because i tend to like sophia coppola's work but i thought that it was just really really impressive and you know just a a real sign that even though she's been making movies now for over 20 years and she is kind of like a major filmmaker she still feels like someone who's underrated to an extent yeah and you know what she writes what she knows and what she knows Mm. is quite a wry eyebrow raised at all of this like i think the majority of uh the cinema going public and the academy let's not forget are probably quite established cinematic dads and Mm -hmm. uh, they're not too keen on being in any way criticized and i don't think it's necessarily that's not just the body of her work. I think she is mainly interested in in women's stories and mm. misunderstanding. And I think your description of that shot is so perfect because I think Sophia Coppola seems like she is very much that observer and not someone who yeah. considers herself necessarily the protagonist or the instigator. And so she has, I think she's someone who seems to have a very deep kind of emotional life and is the, mm. is 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 kind of like this isn't a perfect term so forgive me but like an introvert filmmaker and i think in terms of looking at lost in translation for example and how you know scarlett johansson is sort of her mary sue in terms of 
kind of the description and, and writing around it, um, particularly in terms of, you know, the um, character, you know, this idea that um, it's kind of about her marriage to Spike Jones and the sort of thin veil on that. And that so often in those kind of, in those scenes where Scarlett Johansson's anywhere near um, her husband or the uh, incredibly bubbly blonde actress that he's hanging out with, <laughs> she's barely saying a word, but the camera's focusing on her because that's the viewpoint that we have. And I just, oh man, Rashida Jones is just great. I'll watch her in anything. Oh yeah. So my, uh, we're up to number seven, aren't we? I can mm -hmm. count. Is uh, another second series because I think overall the second series is where stuff really is starting to get going. I think there's a an interesting uh, phenomenon, particularly in streaming now, where if you've got a second series, you can relax ever so slightly. You've done mm. the sort of bulk of the work of establishing things, but people still like it. So you take maybe a bit more risk, or you can just develop a bit more. Anywho. My second, second series is Dead to Me. Mm. Uh, the Liz Feldman. And, you know, again, well, in perfect terms, Ed, but um, I think this is the only thing I've seen in a long time that really warrants the genre of dark comedy um, mm -hmm. because Liz Feldman essentially understands how turning points and punchlines are cousins <laughs> and mm -hmm. that you can have them all at once and that's what makes for something really engaging and satisfying and that isn't necessarily a huge tonal shift like everything is kind of like either a gasp or a laugh um so despite me sort of hyperventilating slightly every episode i was just thoroughly entertained and it's really nice to see again a slightly different sort of friendship between women and the mm. and the complexities and the sort of wider responses that all you know the wider responses that some women who would consider themselves independent or stuck in the same situation but oh different reactions and dynamics oh yeah i just i just love it ed and i don't think it gets enough credit but i think the next series is going to be the last one um through sort of everyone's uh choice and to make it the most satisfying story that they can i really enjoyed the twist that they gave at the end of the first series to kick off this one with and i think they really they really earn it um, so yeah, I just think it's one of the best plotted things you can you can watch right now, and it's hilarious and really moving, and it's it's better than Breaking Bad. I said it. I think what you said about you know like the structure of streaming shows, I think kind of like gets to something I often hear people say about how the first season of a streaming show often now feels like the pilot for like a regular yeah. TV show, totally. because they are. Because they are often like all produced in advance and before anyone sees it, so like they don't really know what people liked or what was working until the whole thing airs or how it gets released, and they can kind of start to figure out, you know, what they want to do next. And on one level, that can be a little frustrating because you end up with a lot of shows where you you have to wade through twelve episodes before they kind of figure out what the show is. And, with I think Bojack Horseman being kind of like the best possible example mm. of that, where mm -hmm. the first half of that first season, you're kind of like, what's this show trying to be? And then like suddenly in the last five episodes, it like suddenly clicks into place. And you're like, oh, right, this is great. But the the good thing about it is like you say, like you you they can have that moment where they really kind of like kick into gear with the second season where they're like, okay, we know what we're doing now. And they feel free to do that because also you know a lot of them aren't quite under the same threat of cancellation as a lot of like broadcast shows mm. so it's nice to, to hear that uh dead to me did do did do that and did that whole thing particularly well with its second season 
My number seven is uh, Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, which was the second instalment of his Small Axe uh, anthology, which aired on the BBC in the UK and also on Amazon over here in the US. And all five of those films, I thought, were really good and like really great in in some cases and uh it was very funny because i've always been very hit and miss on steve mcqueen as a filmmaker like i loved hunger and i thought widows was like really really a blast but shame literally just hate it just (laughs) a film that i have just a real abiding dislike for and 12 years a slave i wasn't like particularly keen on and it suddenly went from being a filmmaker that I was like really divided on to suddenly being like, oh, well, I like I like all I like more than half of his filmography because he's doubled it in the space of five weeks. <laughs> and those five installments, I all thought were really, really good. But of those, I thought Lover's Rock is the one that's like a real standout for me. I think it is like the smallest in focus of all of these these films. Yeah, they're all about the um, West Indian community in in London going from sort of the late 60s through to the early 80s and each one most of them kind of like focus on real historical events or real historical figures in in some way and Lover's Rock is more just kind of like a slice of life thing it's all about a party taking place at someone's house where you have all of these Caribbean immigrants or or children of immigrants just kind of getting together for a party that goes late into the night and it's just such a sensual movie it's so tactile the texture of it is so beautiful it does really capture the excitement and the tension of being at a party uh particularly one that's kind of not really that legal and (laughs) where everyone is just kind of like you know getting drunk or getting high and flirting and all this sort of stuff it's got this great sense of like real frisson between people kind of letting loose and it's just the most emotive work i think that he's done like some of his work can have a little bit of a a coolness to it a little bit of a remove whereas this one feels like he's so fully engaged with it and there's a a warmth to it as well that i think is really kind of palpable and it's just such a particularly like again not to kind of bring everything back to the pandemic but (laughs) i think we're allowed ed i think we're allowed (laughs) yeah I feel like Tobias Fünke. So like, I don't want to blame it all on the pandemic, but <laughs> it didn't help. But like, for being trapped in a house in my own flat for most of the last year, not being able to go out and see people, not being able to go out to go to parties and to hang out or whatever, you know, something like this, which is so much about connection and about collision and about kind of like different people being like thrown together and the, what happens as a result of that you know like it felt particularly potent this year and like i think if it came out last year i would have watched it and still thought oh my this is great this is like a real breakthrough for steve mcqueen a filmmaker who i like i said i have mixed feelings on in general but you know like it feels particularly you know apt this year as a movie and it feels like it it, it felt like it really found its moment coming out towards the end of this year and you know remind reminding us what we've all kind of lost for the moment until they get this virus under control so yeah so so that in addition to its other many myriad kind of like virtues uh, is kind of like the reason why it really resonated with me my number six is a film that um, I think I recommended uh, not that long ago, but I think it's worth repeating. Um, Claire Oakley's debut film, Makeup, um, mm. which premiered 
on BBC Two as part of one of the better uh, pandemic initiatives that we've seen, I think, um, over uh, in terms of uh, alternative release models. Makeup is a really fresh and confident, deft sort of weaving of genres that I haven't seen before. It's truly cinematic in that it's very sparse with dialogue, but you can understand and follow through expression and tension and motivation. And it's this kind of sometimes horror, sometimes kind of magical realism. And I thought it was brilliant. And I don't know what film the film board of Cornwall are doing, but between makeup and bait, they've had got some of the most interesting British films <laughs> made in the past couple of years. Um, so It's the pasties. Yeah, oh, yeah. And the cream. I think we need to shout <laughs> out to the cream as well, Ed. So yeah, between pasties and cream, um, Cornwall, I vote to be the next film capital of England. <laughs> um, you know, coastal. Uh, but yes, back to makeup. I think Claire Oakley's done something really special and I think it deserves a much bigger audience. But again, hopefully it will find that audience through, I don't know, not, not talking about itself too loudly. It's definitely a grower. And I think, you know, we talk about cult followings and I think that sort of dedication and devotion will definitely come to it because it deserves it. Uh, yeah, Makeup by Claire Oakley. Yeah, that's one of the films that when you mentioned it, you know, on, on the show, that's one of the ones I was like, cool, really hope that finds its way over here oh, in some form. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a there's not a great market over here, or there's not a great kind of distribution network for British films to make it over here. I don't think Bates made it over here either. Which, oh, jeez. Uh, dr- dreadful shame. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to keep my eyes open for, for makeup. My number six is... Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always by Eliza Hitman. And I just realised, looking at my list, one of the interesting things about uh, some of the films on there is there's a lot of second films or like follow-ups to break-up films by uh, by female filmmakers. And I think that's kind of an interesting trend because like uh, Eliza Hitman, who directed Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, has directed a few films, but a couple of years ago she directed a movie called Beach Rats, which was like a big uh, court celeb, particularly around the award season. You know, it, it didn't get any awards, but it was one of those movies that everyone said, hey, you should see this because uh, it's really great. Mm. And this feels like, you know, kind of building upon that, but obviously getting a lot more acclaim because it played, at, I think, Sundance back in January and was like the real kind of highlight. It was the thing that everyone kind of like talked about. And, and when it finally became available for rent you know more people picked up on it and it's now currently available on hulu which is where i watched it and i even after a year of hype leading up to it i was like oh wow this is really fantastic it's the story of two young girls uh going from rural pennsylvania to new york because uh one of them autumn played by sydney flanagan and it wants to get an abortion and even though I think abortions are you know, available in Pennsylvania, you know, the rules don't make it easy for you to get an abortion there. And it's still not super easy to get one in New York, but it's easier. So, you know, they get a bus from their rural part of Pennsylvania to New York in order for, uh, to get the abortion. And it's about the sort of 24 hours that they spend in New York before she can get the procedure. And it's a really great portrayal of these two girls who are cousins and who are kind of like, 
supporting each other in this but uh, you know like it's really interesting look at their relationship it's a really clear-eyed look at the, the practicalities of abortion in america how difficult it is to get one even if you are in a state where it's you know safe and available and how elements of class get into that as well because it, you know it's not a cheap uh, procedure to get uh, over here and it's just also a really beautiful film about youth in a certain way because so much is about them is them being in the big city for the first time and even if it's for you know a potentially uh, uh, very traumatic reason or something that emerges from trauma then they still are going out they're still kind of like enjoying the sights of the big city and the two leads in it uh, like I said Sidney Flanagan and uh, Talia Ryder are both really great the filmmaking throughout is you know this really kind of wonderful close intimate look at their life in this real kind of great grounds ground level view of new york like not not dissimilar to what the safety brothers do but obviously a lot less uh stressful and <laughs> i just thought it was a really beautiful thing and uh, in particular the why well, i guess is the eponymous scene of the movie where autumn goes into the abortion clinic and is asked series of questions about her sexual health and sexual history where the answers are always never rarely sometimes always is just one of the most knockout scenes of any movie I saw this year. You know, it's all done in a single take. It's just her responding to these questions and through her responses or non-responses kind of revealing things that, you know, you may have suspected earlier in the movie, but kind of like you suddenly get a, a more of a sense of what she's been through. And I thought that that scene was just such a great, combination of a great performance a really great director obviously getting that performance out but also allowing it to unfold in a single take so that you're getting just the rhythms determined by the actors and the whole film around that scene is is really great as well but that one scene is the thing that like really stuck with me in a in a major major way and again i keep saying it i cannot wait to see what eliza (laughs) hitman does next because i feel like this is a stellar piece of work and hopefully like the acclaim that it's got will allow her to kind of go on to do more kind of incredible work and not just you know make a marvel movie or something in a few years i am desperate to see that film and talking about distribution i'm not too sure if it's over here yet but it is Mm. definitely very high on my radar my number five is um the half of it Alice Wu's mm. queer modern retelling of uh, Serrano de Bergerac, which I absolutely yeah. loved and gave me a lovely big dollop of positivity and a kind of, and a real um, delight in the very notion of an adaptation, because I think so often, particularly recently, in terms of what we're used to with TV and film, it's often to give something kind of all right Ed, i'm gonna be blunt i often think it's just no actual kind of retelling of the story or engagement with the text it's just about casting the new hot things of the day in mm. roles that we find very familiar without much consideration for how does this relate to us now which the half of it completely um blows out the water leah lewis is wonderful as the protagonist everyone is incredibly nice and i don't mean that in a 
sort of immediate one-dimensional way it's that everyone is trying their best mm-hmm. <laughs> and things clash um so i think it's just such a it manages to dodge sentimentality to find something a bit more real and i wish it had been mm. i wish it had been around when i was like 18 <laughs> and i'm really glad that a film like this does exist for you know teenagers but i think you might need to check that you've not got a heart of stone if you watch it and it doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> yeah, this was, I think this was probably one of the most pleasant surprises of the year for me because it was not a movie that I had really heard of and like Netflix puts out so much stuff that like it can be hard to determine which is going to be like the good original that they put out. But I thought this was just such a lovely warm charming movie i thought that it did such a good job of balancing you know like that there's there's things in it like her being you know kind of like a classic film fan and watching these all these old movies with her father which could have been such a kind of like surface level kind of like oh we're you know we're a movie for movie lovers or whatever or just kind of something to gain cred but just feels so intrinsic to the characters and everything about it just feels like really authentic and real in a way that is so impressive and really adds to just how funny it is i think because you know these are real characters going through a real thing that also you know has lots of plenty of opportunities for for humor and for and for you know real emotional stakes and yeah i just thought that the half of it was such a lovely wonderful movie and yeah it's just like more of this netflix please mm-hmm. <laughs> less less of the weird algorithmic uh, output and more just like uh, achingly real and uh, affecting movies my number five again you know like i said you know talking about follow-ups to breakthrough movies for female d- f- female directors uh my number five is dick johnson is dead the second film by Kirsten Johnson, who previously directed the movie Camera Person, which was this like really beautiful, personal sort of biography of her work as a camera a camera person mm-hmm. working on documentaries over the course of like 20 years. This is even more personal than that movie because it is her making a movie about her father, Dick Johnson, who is, uh, you know, as we learn in the movie, you know getting on in years is starting to decline and it is about her coming to terms with the possibility of him dying by staging his deaths in a number of kind of like grimly funny tableaus where he's being like killed by a falling air conditioner or falling down the stairs and things like that and it's a really beautiful movie that like doesn't get lost in that high concept premise which is so totally you could totally see someone like doing that and making it feel like totally arch or something or really exploitative but i feel like she does such a great job of managing that tone where you don't lose sight of who he is as a person like Mm. you do get a real sense of him his sense of humor why he's so beloved by so many people in his life and why she in particular is like really dreading i mean we all we all dread the death of a parent obviously like that's not a new a new insight but you know she does like a really good job of getting across what a kind of decent lovely human being he is and that kind of decency i think is the thing that really shines through the whole movie like you do really get a sense 
you do get a, a kind of a window onto her own personal tragedy in a way that uh, is really remarkable. I think it's very hard to kind of get across that sense of connection to another person. Um, but why Kristen Johnson does through this kind of distancing device of staging these kind of like over the top deaths every so often throughout the movie is, you know, she kind of like really brings you into her relationship with her father and his relationship to his grandchildren and all this sort of stuff. And is, yeah, it's just a really, really remarkable movie. And I'm just like so bowled over with what uh, Kristen Johnson has done over like two films. It's like, it's really, really incredible what she has done with the documentary format and and the fact the two films are so radically different from each other as well just like makes it even more remarkable and you know she is a really exciting new voice in documentary cinema oh the range again another one that i can't wait to see also specifically because you've told me about it as well ed and it just sounds like hopefully a sort of little crack into the idea of grief because even though as you rightly say, sort of, you know, the universality of grief and to be able to get a portrait of that specific loss and that unique loss mm. and using that as a sort of uh, strange kind of letter of gratitude <laughs> and appreciation mm-hmm. for someone, it sounds simultaneously so kind of human and also really wackadoodle, which I think is kind of my... <laughs> my um kind of wheelhouse for what i like that is my favorite combo speaking of which i guess moving on to my <laughs> number 4 um is i hate susie uh which mm. is the uh, lucy preble billy piper mini series i think it's along with i may destroy you one of the hardest things i've ever watched i mean the commonality between those two is that we follow kind of a protagonist and to a greater or lesser extent the people around her after a, a sexual assault in this case it's um a leaking of its intimate image abuse um mm. of uh media um kind of exacerbating a leak um a hack of uh, intimate images that is the kind of catalyst that um spins Susie played by Billy Piper's life completely out of control kind of former child star looking to kind of move into um different roles and I just, I absolutely love everything Lucy Preble does. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was kind of geared up already to think I'm going to love this. And then it just was something completely different from what I thought it was going to be. Um, it's so much deeper and stranger than I think the marketing could ever really encapsulate. I'm really excited that this is the kind of stuff that's being commissioned I really do hope there's a second series, but again, if Lucy and Billy want to do something else, I'm entirely open to it. The relationship with her agent is one of the best kind of female friendships I've seen. Again, there's a big dash of sort of like magical realism, but also almost like cinematic expression in TV. We talk a lot about like TV being like cinema, but often that's Mm. just the budget's very big and it looks nice rather than like, what are you actually doing with the medium to get across? Mm your vision yes i am digging deep into my um <laughs> my film a level and master's degree thank you very much i i do describe your words um <laughs> but uh yeah i think billy piper is like absolutely incredible and there's clearly a lot of her own personal experience that's gone into this but it comes out in and i think the ending somehow manages to be 
incredibly satisfying without being too neat. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, that's another one that I really need to catch up with. I think it just got added to HBO Max over here. So yes. I think I'll, I'll try and catch up with that because uh, I love Billy Piper. She was so, so great on Doctor Who and it's been really great and secret guy diary of a cool girl she was you know really terrific in as well so like it's really great that she's getting something like this that is a real showcase for her as a as a performer absolutely uh my number four is a uh an, another tv show um one that uh, i mentioned uh, a few weeks ago here when i recommended it but um i've recently re-watched it and it just reminded me of just how good it is and that is a uh, how to with john wilson the again hbo show which is kind of hard to describe uh you know essentially he goes around with his camera around new york finds films things has a kind of broad subject in mind where you know yeah an episode will be about making small talk or scaffolding and from there it will kind of go off in interesting strange directions and it's one of the most surprising shows of the year in terms of just like its tone it's got this wonderful kind of like halting awkward tone as he tries to describe the subject that he's doing and tries to kind of like draw out metaphors between his unrelated footage and the subject that he's talking about in a way that kind of feels like on one level like he's making fun of the entire notion of a video essay while also making a really effective one (laughs) about the subject that he's exploring Um, but the thing about it that really sets it Apart is like it was a show that was in production from the end of 2019 to early 2020. It happened, it's set in New York primarily. At some point in the story that it's telling, COVID hits and affects things. And what's really remarkable about it is the way in which the show kind of is recontextualized through that lens once you've gone from, oh, here's like five episodes of him kind of like going around and meeting strange and interesting people and kind of engaging in these like weird conversations around frivolous topics to the entire city shutting down and people being afraid for their lives and this kind of like sudden dose of realness and I've seen so many people who live in New York talk about how that final episode is like one of the few pieces of media that really captures the experience of being in the city when the pandemic really hit and started raging there in the, uh, in the the spring. And it's really remarkable to think that this kind of like silly, strange off kilter sort of documentary comedy ended up being able to kind of like capture this seismic event in this world city in, in such a, way that really means a lot to a lot of people and uh, that that show has got a second season i'm really excited for them to come back whenever it is safe for them to do so or you know it it maybe the second season will be entirely about trying to get back to on their feet after covid who knows but uh it's just one of those things where i went into it with no real idea of what it was going to be and was just like every episode was just such a surprise and a delight and uh, uh yeah I, I can't think of a show that has been sort of like more distinct and sure-footed straight away than than that and yeah so, so I, I can't i can't recommend that enough to people i feel like that alistair mcgowan's big impression sketch where mm-hmm. it's jonathan ross when he was still presenting film and yeah. he's saying why am i on at like eleven thirty? 
holidays <laughs> on at seven. People will go to the cinemas like however many times a year. I've gone on holiday once, put me on earlier. Uh, but my refrain is put it on streaming, please, legally, so I can <laughs> I can watch it. I'm so t- please stop hyping this <laughs> to the point where it's the only thing I feel like I can oh god just give it give it to me please give it to me 2021 please because yeah we need to we need to sort this whole distribution thing out don't we ed like Mm. you know the last thing that the industry needs now is more piracy but if people are gonna keep talking about things and raving about them and not giving people access to things and in a recession in this pandemic anyway my number three is a um, is a bundle. It's a two for one, and it is um, mm-hmm. Jamie Loftus's incredible work um, podcasting for her series "My Year in Mensa" and Lolita podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, My Year in Mensa is more of a sort of personal gonzo, kind of slightly shorter um, podcast, and it's by turns like um, funny and horrifying. And I think the way that Jamie basically kind of joins Mensa as a joke but then kind of sees how far she can get into it and mm. a surprise surprise Scooby-Doo mask who's under here it's eugenics ah um but takes you on this kind of really by turns like entertaining and disturbing personal journey through the kind of past couple of centuries of of intelligence and i just think it's so um informative and there's lots of air horn. I mean, what what more <laughs> could you ask for? And then Lolita podcast came out sort of towards the end of this year and is still ongoing. And it is, again, a very, at times, very difficult listen, but it's just testament to how powerful um, it is. And I think even just the first episode in her distinction between Lolita and Dolores is um, such a brilliant piece of kind of artistic criticism and journalism. <laughs> in one fell swoop and she draws on lots of different um sources and talking to kind of like uh, academics and Nabokov is I can't say it I can't say it but people who specialize in um Nabokov and his work um and I think she manages to give sort of Nabokov an awful lot of compassion and leeway and understanding um in terms of what he probably meant by the book how it's been misconstrued and uh, you know the incredibly understandable um sort of point of views of of survivors and as a survivor herself I think she handles that um really beautifully um so it's a difficult listen um but one that is absolutely worth your time and energy um but yeah I just think uh Jamie Loftus is is a brilliant comedian in her own right as well but I think the way that she weaves that into her journalism and her journalism is just a astounding so yeah that's my year in mensa and lolita yeah i I still need to listen to lolita podcast but my year in mensa was fantastic that was such a great use of the podcast as comedy but also like you say as journalism and also an interesting example of using comedy as a distancing device for the journalism because obviously she received a lot of kind of verbal and written abuse as a result of her joining Mensa and I thought the way in which that she the way in which she was able to kind of make 
that experience kind of like funny and entertaining whilst never losing sight of the fact that you know it seems like it was very very upsetting as well um was a real delicate balancing act that she managed like just spectacularly well my number three is the latest movie from kelly reichardt first cow which again is a good leonardo dicaprio pointing movie yay um, <laughs> it was it was the... The, it was the bovine initially yay <laughs> uh kelly reichardt is um a filmmaker whose work you know i i particularly over the the last um couple of years i've really kind of been getting into and it was a real joy seeing her like get really celebrated for her latest movie even though it had the great misfortune to be initially planned for release like around about the time the pandemic started really kicking off so it kind of had this really truncated release where you know it played at festivals everyone raved about it didn't come out didn't have a release date eventually found its way to uh rental and streaming services um so hopefully more people are able to see it now because it is such a really beautiful movie it's about two men in the oregon territory in the 1820s who decide to you know make a bit of money for themselves and to try and you know build a life by illegally milking a cow and using the milk as in baking and that's the movie <laughs> that's kind of there's there's more there's more going on toby jones is in it he says clafo tea quite a lot and it's wonderful and it is really like like a lot of her work it's very much about character it's very much about detail it's about relationships the central relationship between uh, the two men at the center of the story is like a really beautiful depiction of male friendship you know like totally supportive non-toxic male friendship in a way that you don't see a lot in just in media in general and like they're them together is like a real delight there's this kind of like weird crime caper feeling to it and that they are doing this thing that's kind of yeah silly in the sense of like you know like why would anyone make a movie about people stealing milk but has like (laughs) real life consequences to it because you know you're in the 1820s a lot of people uh there's not a lot of law so if you get caught things are probably going to be pretty bad for you so it's yeah there's this like real nice tension throughout between just how much of a lark a lot of the movie feels like but also this real sense of impending danger for them if they do get caught and it's just this really special distinctive thing that only kelly reichardt seems capable of which is making these movies that are just so rich in detail light in plot but you really feel as if you get to know the characters over the course of the story and i don't know if it's her best film i'm always gonna just so i'm just gonna always stand up for wendy and lucy because i think that movie is just so beautiful Mm. uh but it really feels like a showcase for her as like a director at the top of her powers as someone who's great at getting great performances out of people and as just as someone who is so good at making like distinctly american works of cinema which also feel so completely alien to what a lot of american cinema has become and that is always super exciting and yeah i'm just it's just, just it just reconfirmed that like she's literally one of the greats one of the greats <laughs> currently working which uh you know is nice to have confirmed not that she needed to confirm it amazing my number two is bossy bottom which is zoe mm. coombs ma uh special that i think 
and hope and um pretty much 100% sure that it was filmed pre-pandemic but was only sort of released um and available during last year and I again I seem to be really into people kind of deconstructing genres while presenting a really brilliant bit of the genre um mm. much which you know I just want to watch how to with John Wilson world come on let me um <laughs> and in a similar way I think she manages to create a really brilliant stand-up special whilst airing her concerns with stand-up and kind of it, it sometimes it feels like you're trapped in a building right and this is an analogy i promise i know we're all technically sort of in a way trapped in our own homes but run with me on this one and it feels like you're trying desperately to get out and you can't find a way and you're just stuck on the same same corridors that you've seen before and it's almost like someone says oh no there's a pathway here or like here's a cheat code or i've modded reality for you <laughs> and <laughs> something that actually like opens up your perspective and it also has one of the best Nanette gags I've ever heard um, I think because it's in manages to be entirely in keeping with the spirit and importance of the message and watershed moment that Nanette was um, but I think Bossy Bottom kind of takes the baton and runs with it and has so much fun with like what are basically simple but incredibly effective techniques that builds to this almighty chaotic almost punk like kind of conclusion and i saw it live in a tiny venue this is filmed in a, in a huge venue and it clearly works like you can scale it because i think that's testament to zoe coombsmar being a clown with a lot of just being able to get to the core of the matter and make you laugh along with her and i think more and more we need things that don't feel like they drain our energy but kind of replenish us and yet mm. don't kind of placate us either and i think she does that so fantastically with botty bottom botty bottom <laughs> <laughs> bossy that's an entirely oh what's your number two <laughs> <laughs> uh my number two is the history of the seattle mariners the six-part dorktown series from john boyce and alex rubenstein which aired on Head, I guess, was put up on the uh, SB Nation YouTube channel, now renamed Secret Base, uh, which is a incredibly thorough, very funny, very strange history of the Seattle Mariners baseball team from their founding in the 70s through to now. What I like about it a lot, um, and this is true of a lot of John Boyce's other work, is that it's very wry, it's very funny, it is also incredibly interested in the weird things about sport and in people and using that as a kind of lens through which to understand humanity and what's interesting about um the seattle mariners is like they're they're a team born out of like failure like they were so terrible for so many of so many years like particularly their first like two decades they lost like they were among the worst teams in baseball for 16 years or something like that and what is great about the 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 series is that uh, Boyce and Rubenstein are just just find that fascinating. They find the reasons for that failure fascinating. They find the fact that they were eventually able to kind of become a great team because of players like Ken Griffey Jr. or uh, Randy Johnson is mainly because 
they just kind of kept at it and they kept going and even when they were terrible they still had fans who would root for them and there's something just really really beautiful about doing something like that as a study of failure and finding value in stories that are just weird and strange and don't really necessarily go anywhere but are in some way elucidating about the human condition and that they all do it they do it all primarily through like graphs and charts <laughs> is like even more impressive you know like the the john boyce style that he's developed over the last couple of years of basically just like creating these landscapes in google maps that are consist largely of different graphs that interact with each other and has this like incredibly alienating aesthetic where there's nothing really human about it but the stories themselves are so rich in human detail that you kind of find yourself being drawn into it and this is probably the most ambitious thing that they've made uh it's not quite as good as the bob emergency the series that uh, john boyce made last year where he just talked about why there aren't as many athletes named bob anymore um which is just like it's nothing but rich human stories um but it's still like just this huge monumental thing that i was just so bowled over by like every week that a new one new installment came out i was just so excited to see what extra detail he was going to kind of like draw out of this franchise's history and he he is just like yeah i keep saying he because john boyce is like the main one but like those guys together are just doing something with sports history and sports journalism that i don't think anyone else is even coming close to which is like making it feel like something that is both like statistics and like about the nerdery of it but also like deeply human and beautiful in a way and this like feels like the most ambitious thing they've done in that in that space and yeah it was just such a such a joy to see them kind of do that on a really huge canvas ed yeah had me at graphics and alienating aesthetics <laughs> now we come to our joint number one which as i sort of mm. explained in my grading system is i think what should have kind of set this year alight and maybe in a parallel world it would have done Slash, I think mm. there's still a little bit of awards buzz around it, possibly, hopefully. Um, but it's also the only thing that we both had on our lists, which I think is yeah. pretty rare for uh, our kind of yearly roundups from what I can remember. There's often quite a bit of crossover with some mm. personal outliers, um, whereas yeah. you and I had access to very different things this year, it seemed, um, not just because of... Uh, kind of distribution um but also it's it's nice to be able i think to recommend and to have a sort of wider net cast somehow rather than just maybe we managed to kind of dodge some of the hype or pr machine or what was just kind of like handed to us as kind of awards worthy and noteworthy i don't know yeah particularly towards the end of the year when like there's like seven films that everyone's talking about like that just didn't happen yeah. <laughs> like there's just lots of movies that lots of people are talking about and i don't know there's something quite nice about that yeah yeah interesting to see how that carries on but uh ed what is our joint number one uh unit of 2020 our, our absolute unit of, <laughs> of 2020 is kitty green's the assistant starring uh julia garner a story about an assistant working at a production company under a unseen but clearly quite monstrous executive who eh, maybe has hints 
of Harvey Weinstein? Maybe. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But, you know, like, there's... there's uh, And over the course of the one day that the film covers, she kind of becomes more aware of the atmosphere in the in the production company the ways in which abusers are protected within it and the system the way the system protects itself and what's brilliant about the movie or why i thought was really brilliant about the movie was how well it illustrates all of that idea all those ideas without really saying them out loud until like one particular scene which i'm sure we'll, we'll talk about uh, more it's really more about just kind of creating this pervasive atmosphere of dread and it's not a movie where a lot happens there's just that real sense through julia garner's like great lead performance where you really get the sense of her gradually becoming more uncomfortable with her own kind of like realization of her complicity in what's going on it really chilled me to my core ed i mm. think because it's also the best horror films, I think, are generally where you never see the monster. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens here. And I think it's the first great film of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. I think because it shows the utter alienation and how long it took to get out because of individuals in, in a system that is built by abusers so ultimately (laughs) benefits them and I think in terms of scenes of the year the one that still stays with me is the discussion that goes between her and like I I believe like the head of HR or like the deputy Mm -hmm. uh, played to absolute perfection by Matthew McFadden and I sometimes like to think that it's a crossover with succession and that's um, Tom Wamsgam's sitting there um, because I feel like he'd have the same sort of very subtle but no less powerful shift between well essentially entrapping someone Mm. um and uh being there in a position of trust and then playing everything back to them and it's weird ed because i was thinking today before we um recorded sort of realizing oh the assistant is on both our lists and it's definitely like the film that's kind of simultaneously haunted me and kind of revealed to me and given me some kind of resolve that this is finally being discussed and enshrined in film mm-hmm. and that this could be you know it shouldn't have the weight of everything being fixed by it but it's it's uncomfortable as to how real it is <laughs> like I haven't yeah. I haven't worked in film or for a film company for a long time but all of it came rushing back <laughs> <laughs> watching that the attitude of people and the almost impenetrable etiquette um mm-hmm. which constantly asks you to kind of erase yourself and give your entire being over to this um seemingly sort of glamorous uh industry when a lot of the time you are kind of just be- it's it's a it's a big psychological mix i never had anything that bad mm. um i you know my experience was not overall positive. I won't go into massive detail. It was much worse in TV. That's all I'll tell you. And mainly because I'm not even sure whether the NDAs I signed are still in um, <laughs> are still in effect. Um, but yeah, it's it's such a window onto a world that 
film will only deal with if it's in front of the camera and that other mm-hmm. people can see um, because there've been whistleblowers and, you know, in terms of safety on, on sets and as much as you and I, as people who adore film and will spend several hours every week, the two of us <laughs> for several <laughs> years discussing it, nothing is nothing is worth breaking people to that extent and traumatizing them and i think the kind of the assistant manages to be an incredibly quiet and tense film that just completely gets under your skin yeah and it encapsulates exactly that atmosphere that work culture the idea of this attainable goal um the seemingly unattainable goal becoming attainable, being part of culture, a very clear but kind of greasy ladder to climb up on. Yeah, it's it's surgical, is what I'll say. Um, you don't realise how deeply it's cut you until uh, until the credits roll. Yeah, the to go back to the to the Tom Wamsgan uh, scene, <laughs> I also. <laughs> I also found myself making that about it's hard not to obviously because that's like the big role that Matthew McFadden is playing now but also you know like he's, he's just playing like the middle manager for monsters just seems to be the niche that he seems to have found himself or the middleman for monsters seems to be like the the niche that he's found himself and he's very good at it um but I think the turn that he does in that from seemingly oblivious where you know uh the the julia garner character is trying to articulate her concerns but not really finding the words for it and him clearly trying to deflect by being like trying to not directly address them to sudden total awareness where you realize oh he's he's known what she was trying to say for a long time and he's been he's now changing tack to like you say entrap her or to just kind of like say essentially say like why would you why would you blow up your career like this and laying out the the different ways in which people like Harvey Weinstein were protected by the people around them by obfuscation by acting obtuse by being kind of like trying to downplay what happened to eventually just out and out threatening someone yeah is so effectively done and it's such a great command of tone of the writing is really strong because you know it is kind of like laying out different strategies in one scene but not feeling like they're just rattling through some stuff it just me it feels more like yeah this is how this conversation would go like someone in this position where they're meant to protect people but really they're protecting their bosses would try these different things until one of them worked and just how effective those techniques ultimately were for such a long time, and I'm sure still are, where, you know, like you say, whistle whistleblowers would very rarely come through, and if they did, they tended not to be believed because there was such a culture of silence around these sort of things. And it is upsetting, but also exciting in some respects to see those stories being told and to have something like this that so clearly lays out how that all worked so that people can see yeah this is exactly the process that occurs in order to protect people who are abusers in this industry you can't 
pretend that this stuff doesn't happen or that it's just this kind of like completely opaque unknowable thing because they you know they boil it down into like a 90 minute movie that just effectively illustrates all this stuff better than you know i really think most anyone else has been able to so uh thank you everyone for listening there's no recommendations this week because we just gave you like 22 different recommendations (laughs) to check out all of those you've got you've got time why not (laughs) you've got to check out all of those it was a pretty good year i would say in terms of movies and film and tv and podcasts there was a lot of good stuff being made even as uh life was not good (laughs) for (laughs) a lot of people in a lot of ways but yeah i I think there was there was was there's plenty this year that i found exhilarating that gave me joy that made me think that scared me that shook me to my core and you know i think you couldn't really ask for for more from a year's worth of 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 art uh, of units of content so thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, then please subscribe on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Player FM, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. That's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, Frazier! <laughs> <laughs>